This is TSC Now, a podcast from the TSC Alliance. Hello, and welcome to TSC Now. I'm your host, Dan Klein. As you may have caught in the intro, we are now the TSC Alliance. And I'm so excited to be able to say it out loud for the very first time. If you missed our announcement on May 16th, the Tuberous Sclerosis Alliance has changed our name to the TSC Alliance to reflect how the organization has evolved over the years. And with the name change, we also have a new logo, new branding, and a new tagline. Hope no matter how complex. If you want to learn more about the process that led to the change, check out the About Us section on our revamped new website, tscalliance.org. This episode is also the two-year anniversary of the podcast. Our debut episode was on May 15th, 2018 for TSC Global Awareness Day. And since then, it truly has been a pleasure getting to talk to so many amazing TSE researchers, clinicians, and advocates from around the world, as well as individuals and families touched by this disease who have bravely shared their stories to help raise awareness and let other people know that they are not alone. I am perpetually in awe of this community, and I promise to continue to work hard to produce a podcast that brings you all the latest on TSC research and covers topics that address your most pressing needs. Thank you for continuing to listen, and thank you just for going on this journey with me. In the spirit of TSC Global Day, this month's episode is all about how global collaborations are working to expand access to expert care and drive research to improve the lives of those living with rare diseases like TSC. My first guest is Matt Boltz-Johnson, Program Director of the Collaborative Global Network for Rare Diseases at Rare Diseases International, also known as RDI. RDI recently partnered with the World Health Organization to develop the first collaborative global network for rare diseases. They envision a world where people living with a rare disease, no matter where they live, can reach a network of expertise for accurate and timely diagnosis and appropriate care, and believe that to strengthen health systems to address the needs of the 300 million people worldwide, living with a rare disease requires common strategies and action at the national, regional, and global level. The TSC Alliance and the TSC Alliance of India have partnered with RDI to help advance this project. So to learn more, here's my conversation with Matt. So we're now joined by Matt Boltz-Johnson, Program Director of Collaborative Global Network for Rare Diseases at Rare Diseases International. Matt, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's a pleasure. So what is the mission of Rare Diseases International and what's your role with that organization? Well, Rare Diseases International was set up about five years ago and our role is very much, we're a global alliance of patient organizations from around the world, national organizations regional organizations, as well as international federations. And we bring that community together to have a stronger voice in global advocacy. We aim to influence the development of rare diseases as a global health priority with the UN, with the WHO, and to represent our community and work with our community to maximize on the opportunity of what we're seeing, rare diseases becoming a global policy area for all countries. And you specifically work on the collaborative global network for rare 
degenerative diseases. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that is? Yes, the seed of the idea was born from RDI's work with the UN NGO Committee for Rare Diseases. After a long, about five-year period, we got included in the political declaration for universal health coverage. We got rare diseases included in that political statement by the UN. And because of that, one of the ways to support the implementation of universal health coverage for people with a rare disease around the world, specifically, the WHO liked the idea of connecting expert centres around the world, real global hubs of expertise, the lighthouses, which we all know, where they can share their knowledge, learn together and work to strengthening collaborations locally so expertise can travel rather than the patient. So the global network for rare diseases is being built at the moment and it's very much around trying to connect these major hospitals and centres around the world and organising that so wherever you are in the world, you can access that specialist advice and those traditional barriers, which we all know, are removed. The World Health Organization is a partner in this initiative. How did Rare Diseases International first get involved with the WHO? Well, the work which we were doing in 2019, RDI worked with the UN and the NGO Committee for Rare Diseases was established. And because of having rare diseases included in this political declaration for universal health coverage, the WHO has a role to support UN member states implement those political declarations. And because of RDI's work with the UN Committee, WHO saw that RDI and our community, our members, should be engaged formally to support the implementation of that political declaration for the people we know, uh, the populations like the TSC population around the world, the TSC airlines know where they are based, where their needs are, and how the needs vary in different countries. So the WHO is engaging with RDI and our members to support this implementation of UHC. You mentioned the needs of specific rare disease communities and also the barriers to expertise. What disparities are there between different regions in terms of access to care? Well, over the past year, we've been engaging with the patient community around the world. And we've been fortunate enough to connect with representatives from over 100 countries around the world, which probably the population is over 80% of the global population, to listen to the needs of people, whether they're in India, in Iraq, in the US or South America. And when we engage with our communities to say, well, what are the biggest barriers for you, for your rare disease in your country? Um, we actually had almost a chorus of needs which were being presented, which were present everywhere. So these are sort of priority need areas like social and cultural stigma, discrimination for rare diseases, the lack of political awareness, the lack of recognition of rare diseases as a health priority by governments, the lack of dedicated policy and budgets, a lack of coverage and inclusion of rare diseases in health insurance reimbursement schemes. The divide between big rural populations and expertise being based in the major cities and having to travel great distances and at expense. The fragility of those healthcare systems and fragmentation was reported as a barrier because you need to draw on a, a population size, which is normally across a country like across the US and actually the state levels in the US. It's harder for people to be referred to that expert in another state because of the insurance systems. So there were very common issues which were represented. And whilst they were all common, actually the prioritization of what was more important varied between countries. 
country and varied by disease areas. So for TSE, the priority list for India would be different to what that would be in France. All of those priority areas were there, but the one, two and three would be different. So you make this effort to engage all of these global stakeholders in their countries. Why was it really important to get their input and what role can they play now in furthering the efforts of this global network? It's been a real privilege over the past year to be working with RDI to be leading and bringing our community together. I feel very much that RDI as an organisation has been cutting its teeth on this piece of work, coming together. And we've really tried to listen. One of the risks is that it could be seen, I'm based in Europe, we're trying to develop something which works in Europe and make that global. That doesn't work in India. That doesn't work in China. That won't work in lots of places, Central America. So what we've done and we've tried to be true to this is to have the humility to be led by others, to listen to the needs of people wherever they are in the world, because they understand their system, they understand their cultures. And to do an exercise where we presented what a global network could look like and then get feedback. And having a 360-degree global perspective on that one thing enables us to round our views and definitions of what this should look like. So we have developed something which I think is flexible and dynamic, which can be tailored to the different regional landscapes of how the healthcare systems are organized in East Mediterranean, North Africa is different to the Arabian Gulf. So we've developed a model which can enable each country and each region to plug into a global network and participate, leaving no one behind. And for us, that's been absolutely essential. And what was really exciting was in November last year, we sort of started to add up how many people we've been engaging with. It's been about over 250 experts from around the world, patient leaders, clinical leaders. And when we looked at that, we realized the network isn't going to be developed in the future. The network is being developed now. So what is a network? A network is me and you talking. We are making a connection and you make a connection through the TSE Alliance. And so that a network is simply a connection of people with a common purpose and driving common action. And when we've connected with over 100 countries and we want to increase that and connecting with people representing a population of over 80% of the global community. Actually, we're building the foundations of the network now and we're growing it. So the next phase of this piece of work is working with those experts from those regions to say, well, how do we get ready for a pilot next year? So building off of that idea, how can organizations like the TSC Alliance here in the United States and the TS Alliance in India continue to support this effort? Both TSC Alliance and TSC India have been phenomenal. The people are listening to this, your organizations, the international federations and national organizations have been active in that panel of experts over the past year, representing the voice of people living with TSE around the world. And I think that's really important. We need to make sure that this model, which we're developing as a network, would work for people living with TSE around the world. And you've got really strong advocates shaping how we go forward and directing us. As I mentioned, we don't know all the answers and we definitely don't want to take a Western model globally. And we don't have all the answers. So organizations like TSE Alliance, you do designation of TSE clinics 
So, I mean, that's phenomenal that patient organizations step forward and say, we'll do quality assurance checks on who the expert centers are. Well, when we develop a global network for rare diseases, we need to look at how we define that designation process, those quality standards, and we can learn from TSE Alliance. We can learn from TSE India of how centers are being designated as a clinic for TSE in India. We learn together and we learn from each other, and that makes us stronger. And I've been blown away by the innovative approaches which we've got from our community shaping this global network. So I think there's some brilliant ideas. The DNA of this network is very much from the global community. Well, I know we've been very excited to collaborate on this project, and I think it's a very exciting opportunity to be part of something that can offer resources and expertise to people with rare diseases who haven't had access to that in the past. So you've kind of teased it a little bit. You know, this is a fairly new project and you're looking at a pilot maybe next year, but can you tell me a little bit more about the timeline and long-term vision for the collaboration? So last year was very much pulling together the evidence base for the network. What makes an effective network, a network which flourishes? What's the evidence base for rare diseases, for centralization of knowledge, for virtual care? We've been looking at all that. And this next year is about preparedness, getting our community ready for a pilot. We hope to run the pilot probably at the end of next year, beginning of 2023. It will be a global pilot. So what that means is we need to have a model of the network where we have representation from each of the WHO regions and the six of them. The global network is currently made up of national hubs connecting under regional hubs and those regional hubs then connect with a global network. So we're looking and exploring what those regional hubs would look like in those collaborations for the pilot. And I can see for the pilot that we'll have between six to eight regional hubs, slightly more than the WHO regions, because it's important to get one from the Latin American countries, which will be a Spanish-speaking hub. The hub in the East Mediterranean probably will be an Arabian-speaking hub. The one from Western Pacific, the Chinese one, will be a Chinese-speaking hub. So we need to make sure that these hubs work in a way that their national systems can connect and collaborate. So each one of those hubs will have between two and five centers from different countries taking part and we'll run the pilot for a couple of years. We'll do an evaluation and then we'll scale up the pilot. When we scale up the pilot, we'll increase the number of national centers, national hubs connecting in the regional ones, which we're done in the pilot. And each of the regional hubs we probably will have between 10 to 20 national hubs included in them. So we'll scale up them first, and then we'll look to see whether we need any new regional hubs being brought online. So the aim is probably the vision of this is by between 2025 and 2030, scaling up to full coverage where we have around 20 to 25 regional hubs around the world with between 10 and 20 national hubs in each one. So potentially the global network is connecting together 250 national hubs around the world, which would be phenomenal. Finally, to begin, you described these hubs as centers of expertise. You've used the metaphor of them being like lighthouses. Can you tell us a little bit more about this concept of universal health coverage and how these hubs will help facilitate that vision? The concept of UHC means in a simplistic way that all individuals and communities 
businesses receive the health services that they need without suffering hardship. And this is about ensuring that it includes a full spectrum of services and that they have good quality there. It could be around looking at strengthening healthcare workforces in rare diseases. So the knowledge for TSE clinics in the US, sharing that knowledge around the world, leveling up the competency. And it's not necessarily having the treatments which are available around the world vary a lot, but actually sharing knowledge and leveling that up in different countries is our first big opportunity to radically improve the situation for people around the world. So the role of these hubs, these national and regional hubs will be to connect into a global network to draw on that global knowledge and to exploit any innovation and technologies which are available like the digital stuff and work locally to strengthen the national competency, the healthcare system's competency in rare diseases. So slowly over time, these national hubs have a national coverage. It might not be that they cover everyone in their country themselves, but it's about them networking at a national level to ensure that there's collaborations happening as well. So this is about incentivizing collaboration at a local level, because ultimately that's a greater benefit to the local population and trying to have more integrated systems as opposed to the current fragmentation, which is there. Well, that's a very exciting prospect. And I know that as our organization began to look to create global partners, how eye-opening it was, the experiences were in different countries. So I think the more that we can share that expertise and those innovations, the better off we all can be. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Like I said, we're very excited to be partnering on this effort. And thank you for talking to me today and sharing about this project. It's all very exciting. My pleasure. I look forward to continuing our collaboration with BSE Alliance and TSE India. Thank you. My thanks again to Matt for taking time to explain how the Collaborative Global Network for Rare Diseases aims to achieve universal health coverage for everyone living with a rare disease. I'll post some links about the project in the show notes, as well as a video of Matt further describing the global network model. Next, I caught up with Professor Beatrice DeVries, Sue Strungman, Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, and Professor Anna Janssen, Pediatric Neurologist at the University Hospital of Brussels in Belgium, who are principal and co-principal investigators of the Tandem Project, an international effort to improve the lives of families dealing with TSC-associated neuropsychiatric disorders, TAND, through the development of technology empowering families to self-administer the TAND checklist and access tools to address the specific manifestations their loved one is dealing with. They provided an update on the project, what work still needs to be done, and how the international TSC community has and will continue to provide critical feedback and direction for the project. Here's my conversation with Beatrice and Anna. So we're now joined by Professors Anna Janssen and Beatrice DeVries, Principal Investigator and Co-Principal Investigator of the Tandem Project. Anna and Beatrice, thank you so much for talking to us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting us. So I guess to sort of ground this conversation, can you briefly summarize what the Tandem Project is and what are the aims of the project? Maybe I can take a step back first, Dan. Just to remind all of us, the Tandem Project came from 
TAND. So TAND standing for TSC Associated Neuropsychiatric Disorders. And over the last, since we coined the term in 2012, 2013, we've really tried to connect with the international TSC community around what are the needs for people in terms of TAND so that we can make sure that we take future steps and next step research actions that are aligned with the needs of people in the TSC community. And so the first thing that we all know and that people said to us is most people have TAN problems, but it's really hard for most people to get access to good diagnosis and to get access to good treatment. And in fact, it was such that many families in many countries around the world really found it almost impossible to know what to do. And even the clinicians and the physicians really didn't always quite know what to do and where to start. And as you remember, we developed the TAN checklist some years ago in 2015, it was published. That first version, the TAN-L, the lifetime version, is meant to be a conversation between the clinician or physician and the family in order to help identify the profile of TAND needs so that the clinician, the team, and the family can then think, okay, what do we do next? When Lauren Leclesia, who did most of this work with us, went back to people in the TSC community, they said, the TAND is very helpful. It's great. But can you please develop a self-completed version of this thing that we can fill in at home and that we can therefore kind of take charge of ourselves. Number two, people focus so much on identifying the problems. Can you also give us tools of what we can do once we've identified these problems? And number three, can you maybe build it into some app so that we can easily be able to access it wherever we are in the world? So maybe like a tanned app. And in fact, listening to families in the TSC community, that led to the three aims of the project. And I'm going to hand over to Anne to tell you the three aims. They're really a consequence of that conversation. So the first aim is to develop an other version of the TAN checklist that families can complete themselves. So it's a self-complete version. And families also asked us to be able to quantify how much of an issue is present. For example, if there is hyperactivity, how severe is this? How much of a problem is this? So the first aim is to develop a self-complete and quantified version of the TAN checklist. So that is being called the TAN SQ. And then the second aim, but it, it really came from the families again. They said, like, well, the TAN checklist, it's a really useful tool and it's a good step forward, but we fill it in all the time. But then the physicians, they don't do anything with it. So nothing is changing in the end. We know it's a problem. We realize it's difficult and we have the possibility to talk about it to our physicians, but then we're still stuck. So we really want a toolkit, like a first helpline, something that we can really do ourselves and implement ourselves in day-to-day -day life to just be more empowered, to have more tools to address living with TAND. And then the third aim is very much intertwined with the two first ones, but really aims at consolidating this research and creating a TAND consortium and really pulling in young researchers into the TSC field and make sure that they're inspired by the families and by the TANA project and by other TAN research so that we're sure that even after this project, more people will start doing research on this topic and more people will really continue to make sure that TANT is addressed 
And when you guys set off forming this consortium and inviting people to participate, you made a really purposeful effort to involve diverse stakeholders from around the world. Why was it a priority to have international input from a broad area specialists and patient organizations? Our philosophy was very simple. If we're going to develop an app, we want it to be a tool that will be meaningful to people everywhere in the TSC community. And as you know, I now work in Africa and I know therefore that the context in which I work is very different from the context in which somebody like Unworks in Belgium or where somebody who lives in the UK or the US might be. So we therefore wanted to make sure that if we want to have a product that will be meaningful and that will be appropriate for people all over the world, we need to start right from the beginning to bring in stakeholders from all over the world. Because that way, if you are part of it and I'm part of it and I'm proposing something and you go, mm, I understand why you say that, but that won't work in my country or that that won't work in my language or that won't work in my cultural community, we can really therefore develop the tool collectively. So that's the kind of bringing a broad international perspective to it. Number two, the consortium also has many different professionals. So it's very interdisciplinary because developing an app and building it into a toolkit, a new questionnaire requires multiple different professional and kind of expertise. So we have technical experts and all sorts of professional experts, etc. And I think ultimately because because we want to make sure that this is a project that's meaningful to people who live with TSC, we wanted to make sure that it also has very strong family representation and user representation. And so we've put a lot of emphasis also on having people who live with TSC, parents, family members, et cetera, also from all over the world. That's the reason. And how many people do we have? Is it 26 different team members from 10 different and countries? I really just want to emphasize throughout the first two years of the project or first year and a half that really having this combination of professional experts and lived experts really has proved proven to be a very, very strong driver. And it really creates a very relevant synergy. So to me personally, just having the families on board as stakeholders of the project, I think their voice cannot be strong enough in this journey. We really need as much input from families as possible just to make sure that when we continue and when we go ahead, that we're really heading in the right direction and that where we land is really truly where we need to get. There's one thing Anna and I feel sorry about, and that is that we could couldn't have included hundreds and thousands of people as official stakeholders because from a research study point of view, we had to select a very diverse group of people. There were many people that we really wanted to include. And I'm sure there will be some listening to the podcast thinking, yeah, why was I not included? Or why was my team not included? The philosophy is really, we want to be as inclusive of anyone and everyone, but we had to make a pragmatic start. And so what we're hoping also with the process of the project, so as you know, we're currently in year two, so we still have year three and year four. Increasingly, as we get to year three and year four, we want to broaden out our reach and communication also to other teams, other people, other family organizations, so that we can be ready to scale this thing out. So that at the moment, the focus is on the US and Belgium. But once we have a product that's ready, we really want to work in partnership with anyone and everyone out there so that we can make it available to as many people who might find it useful. So you've started alluding to this is year two now. And actually, Petrus, you and I talked in October of 2019 for the first time about the Tandem Project. What progress has been made to date so far? I'll start talking about 
October 19, when the world was a very different place, wasn't it? October 19, the world before COVID-19. So the first thing that I should say, fortunately for us, given that we've set up this project as an international collaborative one, right from the beginning, we knew that we're going to have our meetings via Zoom and we're going to connect with people remotely. Yes, we planned and we had a launch that was a physical launch meeting in Belgium. And that was an amazingly powerful event. We were going to have another meeting, our consensus discussion meeting last year. We had to do that online because we couldn't meet in person. But fortunate for us, most of our timeline was able to happen because of the international and the remote nature of the project in any case. So in year one, we then started technology identification, setting up the consortium, starting to develop the Tandesque, starting a process around the consensus guidelines, identifying groups of people who then went to the literature and identifying things by year two or end of year one. And we then had done our first round of building a consensus around what's important for identification and what's important for treatment led by different cluster groups. And each cluster group I should add had people from different countries, different professions, and each cluster group we made sure had some family representative as well. So that's kind of where it started. October 19 feels a long time ago and a short time ago. I think we've made lots of positive progress in the last year and a half. I think Year one was great. And you can now add year two, we expected would become more tricky because now we're really into the nitty gritty of the development and of figuring things out. So I'll, I'll hand over to you to talk about the, the tricky bits. Well, let me start with the highlight first. I think one of the things that we have almost completed also in year two is a really detailed scrutinizing of the literature on TANS and the preparation of what we call a scoping review to really first look back and see what has been done and who has been involved and what kind of research is there already available. And mostly to really identify also the gaps, like what has not been addressed so far. And so where should research be headed in the future? And that has proven very useful for the Tandem project. So the scoping review is well advanced. And in parallel with that, lots of energy currently is going to the development of this toolkit. And there again, we really feel that we need the input from the families because they know exactly what they need day to day and what might make a difference for them. And really feel as professionals that it's much more difficult and we're less comfortable in really translating what we know to, to really what families can do. And so what we're currently developing is for each of the TAND clusters, background information on this cluster to acknowledge the difficulty so that families really know like, ah, this, this is really part of TSC. This really is part of TAND. And it's not a strange thing that I encountered this difficulty with my child or with my relative. The second thing is really to make an outline of what families should do for each of these clusters and what kind of help or initiative they should seek for. So who they should look out for or which kind of professional might help them or which kind of association might help them. So this is really what we're working on now. And it's really a very interesting journey as well. That's our big chunk for year two, the development of this TAND toolkit. Well, you've just reminded me that another positive thing I think that happened just a few months ago was that we were able to launch 
the website of the TAN Consortium. So that's tanconsortium.org. And it's mainly a project website, but we try to make it in a way that it'll be useful also for families and maybe to professionals. So if you go onto the website and you look at tanconsortium.org, you will see little movies of us talking about the project, but there's also some resources, for instance, some previous talks that I've done. That's now the place where you can find, I think, where are we, 19 language translations of the 10 checklists at the moment. So you can go there and you can download the language version that you might be interested in to use. Not yet the 10, they skew the new one, but the existing one. But it's the structure of the two will be very similar. So I think it's a very useful tool. So we try to make it as useful to people as possible. So I certainly hope that everyone who go there will find some usefulness there. And one thing that we did is as we're developing the toolkit, we also know that mums and dads and people who've lived with TSC for a long time might have amazing insights and ideas and suggestions. And so if you go to the website, there's actually a place where you can submit your own tip. So you can go on, put it in there, and then it'll come to us and we can look at the ideas and the suggestions that come from people who live in the TSC communities. That's perhaps another way how a broader community of stakeholders, of participants can help us think about TAN. Maybe just one thought for people who aren't so familiar with the project. The idea is I want you to imagine that you can take out your smartphone, download the TAN Toolkit app, register, you fill in some details about your TAN journey, and then you complete this thing online. And then you can click at the bottom at the end, and it will show you what your child's or family member or friend's TAN cluster profile is. And then when you click on that cluster, let's say Anna's used the example of hyperactivity. Let's say you click on the sleeping eating cluster on the autism cluster. It will immediately then take you to some of those resources that we have as a team thought about and reviewed and reflected on and made sure that it's accurate, useful, evidence-informed, relevant to people in the TSC community. So that's kind of the feel of what we want to achieve with the app. We will probably in time to come also want to find more and more mechanisms to hear more from people. And there, for instance, we will have a little mechanism to do little surveys. If you have the app, we can every once in a while do little short surveys to also get information from you that can help us then improve and refine app our knowledge about TAN as time goes on. You've referenced these clusters within the TAN consortium, and these clusters are based on previous research on clusters of manifestations within TAN. Can you briefly talk a little bit about that research and what role these clusters play in the greater consortium? The idea of the clusters came from work that Lauren Lecasio and I did. One of the things that mums and dads and in fact clinicians said to us is TAN is just so overwhelming. Everyone has a unique profile. There's no way for us to know what to do except just each one individual. And what happened is most people therefore just felt paralyzed and they didn't do anything. Most physicians, most often talks about it, most pediatricians, pediatric neurologists and people say, well, I'm not even going to start asking about TAN because I wouldn't know what to do. And that was a real barrier to accessing diagnosis and treatment. And so Lauren Leclesios and I took complex TAN data and then we've now done three little studies of this to see are there natural groupings of the typical behavioral challenges that people with TSC might have, that we might not be able to see with the naked eye, but that computer programs and data manipulation 
strategies might be able to do. The short answer, Dan, is we found that there are seven natural clusters. So seven natural ways in which different behaviors group. So one is the autism spectrum cluster. Many people have autism spectrum-like difficulties. Another one is the scholastic cluster. That's about reading, writing, spelling, math, school stuff. There's an overactive impulsive cluster. There's a cluster for sleeping and eating problems. There's a cluster for all sorts of neuropsychological deficits and difficulties. There's a separate one for mood and anxiety. And and the one that we think probably will resonate with most people is a dysregulated behavior cluster. So that's for aggression and temper tantrums and self-injury because so many people with TSC have that sort of problem. And so if you again imagine the app and you fill in the TANDSQ, it will show you to what extent you have difficulties in one of those seven clusters. In the Tandem project, we added what we call a kind of a wraparound cluster around all those things. And that is about caring for the caregivers. And Anne, maybe you can just say something about that. It's a really important wraparound cluster. It's present everywhere and it addresses questions like how much stress does living with TSC bring in a parent-child relationship? Or how much does it impact on partner relationships? Moms and dads just not having the same view on how to deal with behaviors, for example. Or how does it affect relationships with siblings? Or how has it an influence on how families can interact with other families? Do they really risk to get more and more isolated because of some of these stand issues? Or do parents need to compromise with respect to their work situation because they need to be more standby? in order to be able to care for their relative with TSC. And these aspects, listening to the families, are really, really very important. But very often, they just remain under the radar because they're not a symptom of TSC. When you go to a clinic, this, it's not like you address a SIGA or epilepsy or a, a kidney AML, but this is really something that for families really is very, very important. So that's the reason why we thought it's important to have a separate box for this, that when we go through all these different clusters, we don't forget about it and that we can also make sure that this is addressed and that we talk about it. And so what we want to do, therefore, is we will think about the kind of, we call it the psychosocial challenges for individual with TSC, but separately also around the psychosocial challenges of the caregivers, mums, dads, uncles, aunts, grannies, etc. And we want to make sure that therefore we put something in the toolkit that will also help people to manage to reduce some of these psychosocial challenges that affect our quality of life and our well-being and our ability to live our daily lives. And I think, and maybe the last comment from me, Anne, is we also realized by thinking about the psychosocial cluster, how little research there has been in what we can do to support the well-being of caregivers. And, and we've been talking about similar research in autism community, for instance, where sometimes very simple and short, brief interventions. We've even in my autism team in South Africa done some research of three sessions with caregivers of kids with disabilities and how just focusing on their well-being can make a huge difference to those psychosocial stresses, to their stress, to family relationships, to their sense of positivity and well-being and feeling empowered to live with. TSE, even if we don't change anything yet, if we can live better and feel that we have a better quality life with our disability, then already I think that goes a very long way. So that's a nice example of by identifying gaps 
that Anne referred to earlier, we can now, and we will be very keen, and maybe there's somebody out there listening with a checkbook who can help us find ways of, as quickly as we can, evaluating this kind of strategy and this kind of simple but powerful intervention also for people in the TSC community. It has been really a very inspiring journey so far. Just the setup, the kickoff of the Tandem project. There's a lot of individuals spending a lot of time on top of lots of other things to just help us move this thing forward. And I think for me, it has just been really rewarding also to experience how all these different people with different backgrounds are really committed to joining for a similar and for a same goal that really feels very special. And I, I'm, I'm just very grateful that we're able to walk this journey together. Absolutely. So having talked about the aims of the project and where we've been so far, my final question for you is what's the timeline moving forward and how can individuals with TSC and their families help continue to move the research forward? We are now in year two. And as we've outlined, we have all these kind of technical things to do in year two. Next year, in year three, the main plan is which by then we should have the prototype of the app. We will then take it to people who live with TSC. We will focus mainly in Belgium and have them administer it and play with it and use it and give us feedback about, is this useful? Is this feasible? Are the right sorts of information in the right place? Or do we need to change the way we present information to people. And then the main goal for the last year, year four of the study, is for us to bring everyone, and this is where we'll probably have a bigger group than we even started with, together to say, okay, if we have a tool, we are ready to launch, so to speak, into the big, wide international world. What do we need to consider? What do we need to think about in terms of money, resources, ethics, next steps, HIPAA in the USA, you know, patient safety and confidentiality. The one good thing for everyone is we are not collecting any personally identifiable information at all in the app. So we hope that at least that will make it much easier for us. So that's really year four. Then it's about its plan to send this thing out into the world so that people can actually just download and use it. Yeah, no, I was just thinking in the last year, we definitely also will want with people from different backgrounds, prepare a scenario for how to make sure that the app can be really appropriate for different settings. So that takes into consideration barriers as language, for example, or maybe some setting specific aspects. So just to make sure that if we scale it up and out, that this is really prepared. I think there's three different ways in for feedback is one through the website as we mentioned earlier, where individuals can just provide their tips and their views. Second is through the surveys that might be distributed in the community through through the app. And then third is as being part of our conversations with families and at different meetings. And there will be different points where we really plan to consult the international TSC community, either through the different organizations or in a different way to really have input on the tool just to see if we need to change or adapt or improve it. And I think one thing we've learned about app development is you don't start with the first one being absolutely perfect. And so I think we would want to encourage people and everyone in the TSC community to continue to work with us into the future. You know, the end of year four will not mean the end of the app. That will be the start of actually rolling it out into the real world. And let's say we might, let's call it a 
a one-star app or a two-star app, we will want to continue to make it the three-star and a four-star and a five-star and a six-star. And the only way we will be able to do that is by getting honest and real feedback from moms and dads and people with TSC to say, what about this kind of thing? This doesn't quite work so well. This is now a little bit out of date. So we really want long-term and ongoing engagement with people. The purpose of this project is not for us to get papers. The purpose of this project is really to make a difference and to empower. That's why we call the project an empowerment project to make a difference to people who we know struggle to get access to tanned support, tanned information, tanned diagnosis and treatment all over the world. Well, thank you for providing such a comprehensive update of the project. I know that TAND continues to be one of the most challenging manifestations in TSC and the group that you've convened and the work that you're doing to provide families with tools to empower them and to give them places where they can start to seek answers, I think is very inspiring. So thank you for all the work you're doing and thank you for taking time to talk to me today. Thank you. Thank you. My thanks again to Petra Sonata for sharing exciting updates on the Tandem Project. Be sure to check out tandconsortium.org to learn more about the project, access the TAND checklist in various languages, and to submit tips that have worked for you and your family when trying to manage TAND manifestations. This project truly is a collaborative effort and would not be possible without family input to help focus the aims on meeting those most pressing needs. To wrap up this episode, I just want to say thank you again to everyone who participated in the Step 4 to cure TSC global virtual walk, run, ride to those who raised awareness of TSC throughout the month of May and especially on TSC Global Awareness Day by wearing blue, by getting buildings lit up blue, by advocating for proclamations from local and state leaders, and most importantly, by sharing your stories on social media. May was such an incredibly busy month and all of you helped raise a tremendous amount of awareness and funds to help move our mission forward. I hope everyone listening enjoys a restful and reflective Memorial Day weekend, and I will be back with you next month with a fresh new episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to TSC Now. Our theme song is Take Charge by Young Presidents. Listen to all our episodes and subscribe to the podcast now at tscalliance.org slash tscnow. See you next time.